Let's Talk Animals, from Aardvarks to Zebras. Your host, Dr. John Hunt. As you know, we are at a new time. We are now broadcasting at 4 o'clock instead of 10 a.m. every fourth Thursday. I also want to plug my Sunday show like I do every month, Pet Sounds, on 7.30 in the morning. Those are three- to five-minute little shorts about uh, anything uh, concerning pets, so please uh, tune in to those. This month, uh, this show, the January, is the beginning of my fourth year in this program, and I'm really, really excited about this show. Uh, I've discovered this book called Camel Crazy by Christina Adams, and it's an outstanding example of being an outstanding parent. Good morning, Christina. How are you? Oh, good morning, John. And that's such a nice thing to say about being a parent. Thank you. Well, I think the book really shows that that is the driving force in your quest for helping your son. So first of all, before we start talking about that, as I ask all my guests, how did you get here from there? Well, that's not a journey that I would have ever expected to take. I'm a native of D.C. and Virginia, and so as a coal miner's granddaughter, my people had, uh, you know, probably uh, maybe they had mules in the coal mines or something and probably horses and cows, and no one would have ever thought about a camel entering my life. So I had um, had a career in the past working at the Pentagon and in aerospace and uh, government and things like that. And so then I got a master's degree in writing, and um, I had written a novel and um, probably would have published that, but then my son was diagnosed with autism. And so I threw myself into research and trying to help him get better. And I discovered that autism is uh, in many ways involved with the immune system and what the children eat and adults uh, can affect them. So that is the subject of my first book, A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention and Recovery. And uh, so that's when I also discovered, you know, like about the milk and how cow milk would make my son have a lot of problems and make his autism symptoms much worse. And so removing cow dairy was a big thing for him. Is that a fairly common thing for autistic uh, children? uh, Yes, it is. Uh, Removing dairy and then um, some other foods is about the most uh, common and productive intervention from a biomedical standpoint. So tell us about Jonah. Uh, you can tell us a little bit about autism if you have enough information about the etiology and where it comes from, genetics or whatever, and the kinds of well, things you had to deal with every day with Jonah. Yeah, well, my son was a beautiful, blonde-haired, little blue-eyed boy, so as cute as could be, and he was very bright. He spoke early. Um, he, you know, uh, had excellent diction and all that, but then um, he regressed and that it does happen in autism sometimes. Um, so it, it's apparent that some kids just um, don't, um, they don't, they may have latent genes for autism traits, as society has always had people that have either kind of subclinical cases of autism or traits, but if there's a lot of things in the modern-day environment that can cause uh, people that have some of those uh, genetics and family um immune system backgrounds to kind of enter into more the autistic side of their functioning. So for him, um, you know, he did have that regression. Um, Looking back, you know, I can see things that I would have done differently. Um, But, you know, you don't know anything as a young mother, especially there wasn't the Internet back then. 
And um, so after he got um, started having a lot of behavior problems, um, I noticed I had noticed before that his cheeks were very, very red. And I used to say to the doctor, like, hey, he's, it seems like milk is maybe bothering him. Shouldn't we do something, put him on a different formula or change his diet? And she was like, no, no, no. Um, well, it turns out that I was actually right about that. So I didn't have any idea that milk was actually causing him such a problem. And so um, after he was diagnosed, though, some uh, other parents in my neighborhood said, hey, we all have kids with autism, and this is what you do. Do it now. Do this. Do that. And don't waste time uh, because early intervention is important. And uh, I took away um, cow milk immediately from his diet called casein-free, and boom, he started talking uh, so much better within uh, like by three weeks. And how old uh, is he at that time? He he was almost three. (coughs) And... So that's the subject of the first book, A Real Boy, all the intervention, the behavioral, the teaching, this and that, um, and how the diet worked with him. So we used a few little medications, uh, very, very small amounts, uh, to kind of treat the viral issues that are common in autism, the inflammation, um, things like that. So um, that's what gave me that background. So then after that book came out, I was uh, at a children's book festival in California, and I saw a guy with a camel, and Ever since then, life has not been the same. So, um, yes, I used to once write about aircraft and uh, things like that, and now I write about camels, and I've even been known to, to discuss camel poop or urine on the odd occasion. <laughs> Which is, I do want to ask later, because as a veterinarian, I'm always interested in poop and urine, as you know. That's part, All right. of, that's part well, of what we do. It's funny, <laughs> it's funny how much uh, significance those things can have, yes. you know, in, when you're looking at living beings, right? What comes out, it's important, kind of tells you what's going on inside. We'll get to that later when we talk about camels. So yeah. the the kinds of things uh, that that Jonah was showing at the day-to-day things, uh, may, maybe some people don't understand that. Um, I don't know if yeah. you want to get personal, but um, just kind of characteristics that you see in a child that's uh, is showing signs of autism. Right. So... Um First of all, um, there's the kind of behavior, and then there's their their physical, because it is sort of a medical condition, but the awareness of it being a medical condition is, is still very low after, you know, 20 years I've been doing this practically. So uh, from the behavioral standpoint, first of all, um, there's a thing called joint attention behaviors. And a, a, a child that's functioning normally like that, they will bring a toy over to show it to you, or they will point at something, even before they can speak, you'll see that index finger pointing at objects, and then their eyes will be looking at you to see, are you looking, are you looking at this object? I'm showing it to you. Um, so children with autism often don't do that. Um, they also um, don't, um, may not engage in the same way. Like a, a typical child, you know, maybe they'll have um, a, a thing where, like, they, you know, are, are get very attached to, to the parent, show separation anxiety, do this and that, all those different phases, play peekaboo with you, things like that. So children with autism, they can do some of that, um, some of them, but some of them can't do it at all. Or some of them will do it in ways that seems unusual, not like the other kids. Um, now, early stage, there's a thing called parallel play that all kids go through where they don't really play together, they just play next to each other. But a typically developing child will engage others in their play, and um, they will start talking, you know, too. Um, and engage others in their play, even if it's not real clear what they're saying yet. But autistic kids generally do not do that. They will stay on their own, play on their own, or they might try to play with other kids, but it will be awkward and kind of strange and not going well. Um, 
So those are the kind of the markers. And autism is still just diagnosed by observation. Even though there are medical markers, you don't get your diagnosis that way. So another thing that you will see in autistic kids biomedically is that um, they often maybe have gastrointestinal issues from early on. They may have constipation. They may have loose bowels. They may have rashes. Uh, they may have different motor skills. They may, you know, uh, feel a little rigid, like that's kind of common. Or they may have unusual responses to stimulus, like uh, certain sounds that maybe other kids would like would really bother them, and they might scream or cry. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that. Um, and then biomedically, you can look at their skin. That's a really good indicator of health. Um, and kids that have, you know, rashes or dark under eye circles, that's uh, often associated with uh, some people that are on the autism spectrum. So how important is, is eye contact? You mentioned uh, picking up a toy and not looking. But in general, is, is eye contact uh, a big factor? Yes, it is, and it is. It often remains a, a factor for people uh, with on the autism spectrum throughout their life, even if they no one would ever guess they're on the autism spectrum. Um, so eye contact can be kind of difficult, or engaging in back and forth talk, like instead of you know monologuing or um, something like that, like having a casual, loose conversation back and forth. That's kind of difficult for some people. But um, eye contact, yeah, the kids. A lot of kids have a very, very hard time doing that. And then as they get older, sometimes they can learn to fake it and like kind of look at the middle of your face or something like people with autism will sometimes say that. Like I just stare at their nose or something. They think I'm looking in their eyes, but it can be very overwhelming for them. Um, They're very sensitive, smart people. I mean, people with autism, if you test them properly, um, if they don't speak using nonverbal mechanisms, I mean, uh, the IQ sometimes shows up higher than typical people. So um, that confuses never, a lot of people. Yeah, just because someone doesn't speak doesn't mean they have nothing to say. Right. Or if the if a child is doing exceptionally well in a skill, then they people may or parents may not accept the fact that there are other deficiencies. In, in right. Processing. Like there's a thing called hyperlexia, and a lot of kids with autism have that, where they can read and know their letters very very early. Um, but sometimes that's not a great thing because it can be a sign that they're on the spectrum. Um, however, some of them can get a lot better, and then that does become more of a, um, you know, a good thing if they can adapt it to use in a practical way. Well, let's get to, to camel's milk. So yeah. you you discovered an article, was it, in your book you're mentioning? Uh, an article titled uh, Camel's Milk and Autism. Is that one of the first things you noticed or found out about camel's milk? Well, one of the it, it is, but it was actually an idea I had. So um, I was standing at a children's book festival, and I saw this camel, and um, so I just went over and said, "Hey, what's it doing here? If no kids are riding this camel, I was very bored and nosy as a journalist type person." <laughs> and so the owner said, um, "Well, we're making soap and lotion from the milk." And I said, "What else do they do, they do with the milk?" And he said, "They give it." to premature infants in hospitals in the Middle East because it's thought to be non-allergenic and it might be close to human breast milk. And I thought, boom, that's it. That was my light bulb moment because I thought, A, this milk, um, if they give it to these infants and it's like breast milk, I, it may help reboot my son's immune system, which was always connected to his functioning level for autism. And then uh, B, it might be a great dairy substitute because my kid, like a bunch of those, on the autism spectrum, when they would get cow milk, it would make him actually do hand flapping, toe walking, completely zone out. And he would even said when he got older once and he got it, he said, it feels like there's dirt in my brain. And so um, I was desperate for a milk substitute because all the vegan milks, rice and nut and soy, they would cause problems too. 
So we were using a potato milk, and um, it was all powdered potato milk. And I was like, I really wish I could have a animal milk because I thought that was better for bones. And it turns out there's a study that shows that it is. But um, yeah, so when I saw that camel and I had my idea, I went home that day and I researched on the internet and there was zero about autism and very little about camels or camel milk at all. Um, just some weird science articles on wound healing. It had been used for that um, in Russia or something for, you know, since the 70s and how hard it was to make cheese because it doesn't coagulate like other milks. But I didn't give up. I kept looking and looking. And a few months later, I found an article uh, by Dr. Reuven Yagil and another uh, doctor who, um, and Reuven is a, is a veterinarian, by the way, and uh, in Israel, and they'd given camel milk to some children with autism and they improved. So I was like, yep, uh, I was on the right path, and now I have got to get this milk. So you developed a milk import scheme, as you call it? Yeah, that's a that's a proper term for a whole bunch of uh, pieced <laughs> together actions. Um, so I just started, you know, there was no camel milk in America. I could only find one place that even said they sold camels, and they didn't even write me back. So no such thing at that time. Um, so I started talking to people, and I had a, a Pakistani friend who went to Israel, and he said, I can bring some back. And he, brew, he brought it back, but it was thrown away um, on arrival at John F. Kennedy Airport. Uh, so I was like, oh, no. But he said, I've got a phone number for you to call Israel and talk to this guy. And so I called someone and woke them up, and they sent me to someone else. And he, did, he was selling the camel milk from the Bedouins in the desert, but he didn't really speak much English. And I was asking him all these science questions. He's like, call this person. And so that was Dr. Amnon Gonen, who is a cancer researcher and uh, PhD and super bright person in biomedical um, uh, world. And so we started Skyping. So I was, you know, in my bedroom. I'm a single mom then and just trying to figure out what's with the milk. How do I get it? And he's a scientist over in Israel, but we would Skype and discuss things. And he didn't know anything about autism. And I didn't know anything about camel milk. So together, we kind of put together all our ideas, and uh, the thought was that it would help uh, conditions related to inflammation uh, because adult people were already using it in Israel for their Crohn's disease. And uh, so I managed to smuggle some in, uh, which was legal-ish, and um, through him, he sent it it over. And I had a doctor's letter, and so, yeah, and I was finally holding raw frozen bottles of uh, Bedouin milk from the desert in my hand, and it was just a wonderful moment. And the federal agents at the airport were accepting, or were they... uh, Yeah, there was a wonderful veterinarian at LAX, and um, he, he really got it, and he was helpful because I had a doctor's letter, and so it turned out later... I kept looking and looking, and um, it says you can bring in uh, milk for a child's use. Like, that's one one uh, exception. One exception that I found. And so, uh, and then I uh, did bring in more, and it always got here in just fine shape. But then um, the veterinarian suggested, well, you know, since you're doing this on a regular basis and you're flying in these big suitcases full of milk, <laughs> you know, frozen, frozen 24, milk, right? 48 bottles of liter <laughs> bottles, big bottles of uh, well, actually, there I guess they're yeah one liter bottles. Um, so yeah, the heavy suitcases. Like you should really talk to the Washington people. I was like, no, I don't want to talk to the Washington people. I've been a Washington person. No, I've been a bureaucrat. I don't want to go into that. Um, but I finally did, and a very kind uh, woman working for the USDA. Um, we talked about it. I submitted paperwork um, X, Y, and Z, and yes, we got permission. So uh, miracles can happen. 
And at this at this point, the permission was fairly specific and narrow and not easy. Was it easy? Once you got that yeah, permission, yeah, no, it wasn't. Um, I had to write letters. I had to say exactly what it was for, you know, and what this for. And and she was like, "Okay, we gave you permission for twenty four bottles." And I'm like, "Oh, but I already have to spend, you know, twelve hundred dollars on this person's ticket that's going to bring it for me. Can I get another suitcase, please?" <laughs> and they said, "Yes, you can have forty eight. And um, this so time. then I never, I never had problems after that. It was just great. And whenever people would bring it in for me, um, it, the airport personnel were very sweet because they know it was for a child that had problems. And everyone was just like, send it, blessings to the mother and the child. Isn't that awesome? That is just, yeah. that is so great to hear. So yeah. you brought the milk home and you, and Jonah, I, I don't know how you, uh, I can't remember in the book, you, you just said drink it or did you disguise it? And tell us what yeah, happened. Yeah, I, I just served it. I just did a, the old switcheroo, which I recommend to parents. Don't tell them that you're giving them anything different, for gosh sake. Don't do that. Um, so he had been having, you know, his potato milk, and I just put camel milk in the cereal. So I said, here's your bedtime snack. And so I put four ounces of camel milk in. I didn't tell him any different. And he ate it. He was like, yeah, yeah, no, nothing different. And um, I even took a picture of him. And uh, so I have a picture of him with his first, uh, first camel milk ever. And so at that time, I was just exhausted, though, with this whole import process and being a single mom and all this stuff I was dealing with because he had regressed, and that does happen in autism. He had done very well before, but then, um, and I'd written about that in my first book, A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention and Recovery. But then um, he started to regress, and that happens biomedically sometimes because these guys are, you know, sometimes have problems with their their um, biochemistry. And so he was, like, doing things like climbing up ladders and dangling off the balcony and I was like hardly hard to keep him alive but um so I gave him that milk and I was just like oh I don't know I can't even think about it. I hope it does something but the next morning he was so different I could never have expected that level of in difference. one one night one dosage one night eight hours basically four ounces of uh Bedouin camel milk Boom. unbelievable the next morning that is something because yeah. I would I would expect anything nutritionally like most of us uh, read about and do ourselves, it's, it, it can take months for some nutrition. Right. Uh, well, these kids Especially are, with the immune um, system and the inf- inflammatory situation. Yes. Um, but they're very, very sensitive. They, you know, part of the theory of this is that they have a leaky gut. Um, and I have seen things that have shocked me. Like years ago, I had a friend, she had a daughter, and she'd say, oh, you know, she can't eat this, she can't eat that, can't eat that. And it seemed so extreme to me. But then once I saw the girl had eaten a carrot, and you could see the carrot literally in her diaper. And it was bright orange, and it had burned her. Wow. And I was like, oh, man, this is worse than I even thought. So our kids are different. They don't fit the typical mold. And things can affect them very rapidly. At that time, before camel milk, my son, he would get our dinner roll at, you know, at, a, at a restaurant, even if I didn't think it had dairy in it, like you eat a dinner roll or something. And if it was a yeasty type of roll... Oh my gosh, in 15 minutes his behavior would change and he'd be under the table and kicking, you know, things for fun and acting out and I was like, "Oh no, I shouldn't let him have that role." So they are very rapid responders some of them. Some of them are not, but some of them are. It's almost so, analogous um, to a an anaphylactic reaction to a, a bee sting because that's a, so quick with the inflammatory response. Imagine that in the body. It just has that feel to it that the quickness 
Yes, um, and these kids are uh, highly reactive. You know, again, not all of them, but a great majority are. So um, they're highly reactive, and sometimes you can see it, sometimes you cannot, but you don't know until you try. And I had thought my son was controlled for inflammation and that his allergens were, you know, kind of down and controlled because gosh knows he was on, you know, his his casein-free diet, low sugar, no colors, you know, all that, and he was on small amounts of medication to manage those things, and... um, no, he was not. So that's why the milk was able to have such a powerful effect. And it is very powerful milk. Now, um, you know, if you're going to get that Bedouin milk from the desert where they're grazing on the plants and they're just amazing, that's super powerful stuff. Uh, not the easiest to get, but incredibly powerful. And we can talk about the differences of milk in, in a minute or two. Uh, so after you got your first couple of big cases of frozen and you started giving it to Jonah, was it improvement every day or did it level off? Or, I mean, what were you seeing after a week? Well, it didn't even take a week. Uh, the improvement continued like he had a good day at school and he was just better every day. But then within just a few days, all of a sudden he was able to shake off my hand because uh, some of us parents with autism have to grasp our kids like the collar or their hand so they don't run out in the street because they won't look right. or in a parking lot. And he said, you know, let go, Mom. And he looked both ways, turned his head awkwardly, and looked both ways, and then he walked across the, the street when the light was flashing. And so in the parking lot, he was actually staying more near me and not, you know, just kind of la, 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 could get hit by a car. So that was really amazing, quick. And then within, um, like, a few weeks, his skin started to clear up. And it wasn't as bad as it used to be with the red cheeks and all that, but he still had these little white bumps and things on the backs of his arms and on his cheeks. And it turns out that was the sign of allergic response. And so systemically, that milk started working all through his whole body. And the skin cleared up and just became so smooth. And camel milk now, I know it is a thing for skin um, and immune response, but um, even topically, it's great. Like if I've ever kind of like, you know, burned myself on something or something irritated me, I treat it topically with camel milk and it's amazing. But um yeah, at that time, it was just amazing to see what it would do. And then he also had really marked responses to getting dairy or getting sugar. And so he didn't get dairy that much, but you can't always control sugar or carbohydrates. And so when he would get little bits of milk powder or accidentally like in some crackers one night, you know, he was like, oh, oh, my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts. And then um, he couldn't sleep. And then I gave him some camel milk and boom, within minutes, he's fine. He went back to bed. Um one time he came home and he'd been in a movie and he had um, like a diet drink and a giant one at a movie theater. And he was acting awful like a drunk frat boy, I call it. Just, you know, goofy and giddy and not and disobedient. And, and I said, what did you get? And I'd never tried camel milk for that yet to see if it would help that kind of food infraction. And I gave it to him, and in 15 minutes, he was so much better, and he was crying and apologizing. I don't know why I acted like that. I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Sweet. So, so even a diet, artificial sweeteners can be a, a problem? Is that what you're implying? Or? Well, at that time, of course, you know, I didn't know much as much about that as I do now. So children with autism, many of them have different gut bacteria than those that don't have autism. And we know now about the microbiome, like our bodies are, you know, composed in many ways of this vast population of bacteria and microbes that are in our body and our gut, and we call that the microbiome. And that is can really influence our physical and mental health. So some of our bacteria in our bodies are good and help us digest food and nutrients, 
and some of them are bad. And when their immune system is trying to fight them, it can be damaging and um, create, um, you know, things like uh, not only inflammation, but um, in children with autism, um, they can, you know, have what you call a leaky gut, like I said, and, and so they can get this deficits in their neurological functioning if things like, you know, bacteria, undigested food, and perhaps even that, you know, sucre, whatever that was in that diet drink, um, they, can't de- they can't get rid of the toxins and things like we do if they enter into their, uh, you know, bra- blood-brain barrier and uh, affect the way that they think. So the, the book, Camel Crazy, I have um, the science chapters basically chapter 15 in the middle of the book, and then in the back I have a lot of footnotes. So for you medically-minded people... I kind of explain this easily for people to read, but then in the back you can have your footnotes where you can show it to your physician or uh, dig into it yourself. Yes, yeah, so, so about the milk, um, you discuss lysozymes and lactoperoxidase and antioxidants and insulin protein, all these different ingredients. Maybe we can go into that and how that all relates to a term that you, or a condition called ox, oxidative stress. Maybe yeah, start about that stress. oxidative stress. Maybe first talk about that, and then let's go into a little bit about the milk uh, ingredients. I think my listeners would be very, very interested in that. Okay, great. So, um, children with autism type um, immune system deficits have a decreased ability to process free radicals, and a lot of us have heard that term, free radicals, but we don't really know what it means. I mean, they've never done a good job of explaining it. So a free radical is like a toxic byproduct of our metabolism. And so that can lead to oxidative stress. And the, and that's where you just don't, you know, you can't detox uh, the things that are uh, causing you problems. So um, the brain is really sensitive to oxidative stress. And uh, the camel milk proteins and nutrients can reduce the effects of oxidative stress by regulating the inflammatory pathways. Um, so I guess I would say, um, you know, we know that um, the different types of autism now, because there's been some recent studies, are linked to gut bacteria that can alter immune response. And so a study of autistic children with GI issues showed unusual levels of the proteins that regulate the permeability of the gut. And so this gut wall permeability dysfunction can create what we call leaky gut. And so that's where, you know, you get this bacteria, undigested food and toxins get in the bloodstream. And so it's like this vicious circle, you know, with oxidative stress, undiagnosed, you know, undigested this and that um, affecting the brain. And we know now that there's a link between the gut and the brain um, functioning. These two people scoffed at that, but the the science is finally getting communicated now. Um, so it's almost like having foreign, really, foreign substances in the body, the leaky gut, and the body acts like it has a foreign substance in it. Is that kind of a, yes. an analogy that people can understand? Yes, exactly. So it's trying to reject it. You know, it's trying to fight it off. And that's right. where you get that heightened state of inflammation, which is also common in a lot of other disorders that are treated with camel milk, like um, diabetes, uh, Crohn's, uh, the gut issues, um, you know, food allergies, things like that. The common thread is inflammation. And so camel milk, you know, we don't know everything about why it works, but pretty much we're getting a very good idea. So... It has essential fatty acids, a high level of insulin or some insulin-like protein, vitamins and minerals, and those account for some of the benefits probably. But the most important components are the enzymes, immunoglobulins, and some other proteins. 
So, you know, lysozyme can, as that enzyme, it can destroy all bacterial cell walls, um, help food allergies and um, repair like immune systems. Then there's the uh, lactoperoxidase in all animal milk, tears and saliva, and that's got antiviral and antibacterial properties and can fight tumors. And then um, there's the uh, NAGASE, which is antibacterial and is similar to human breast milk enzymes. But then you have these little um, amazing things um, that are called, um, well, you call them antibodies because every animal milk has antibodies. Its milk is designed to deliver antibodies to infants, and including animals, before they can develop their own. But the camel milk has um, nanobodies because um, it's unusual, these little tiny antibodies, because um, most, um, most uh, animals don't produce these little tiny ones. Um, but these are unique in that they're only formed of heavy chains instead of heavy and light chains. So they're super tiny, and they can penetrate, you know, kind of the, the cell walls, the bacteria, the viruses. They're like incredible little, you know, German uh, pathogen fighters, so they can get in and destroy them. And they also are so small that they can penetrate kind of like the crevices of, of, of flesh, of cells, of things like that. So it's those little super-powered immunoglobulins that are amazing. And they're one-half to one-tenth the size of humans, just to give you a scale. And um, so then also the, uh, the micelles are this kind of uh, structure that wraps in, um, you know, these immunoglobulins and wraps in the insulin. So it seems like it protects it, and they're delivered through the gut. And most of these kind of things get eaten up in the gut, um, because the gut is an environment designed to digest things. But it seems like the camel milk uh, things are wrapped in the micelles or whatever delivery forms are going on for some of these proteins. Like they're survivable. They can survive through the gut and or then be able to, you know, be uptake by the human um, body. And so uh, that is part of the reason why, um, you know, maybe it works in um, diabetes type 1 and 2 because the insulin seems to survive and therefore, some of the people, like with type 2, they're able to lower their insulin dose or even go off of it um, if they drink camel milk. So that's something, of course, you have to talk about with your doctor, but they won't know anything about camel milk. But if you are able to try that yourself and, and test yourself, you might see that that could happen. So a lot of these, what you just uh, described, the lysozymes, the lactoperoxidases, two, it seems like there's two things it does. It kind of helps the gut so it doesn't leak, so to speak, mm -hmm. but also what it does absorb, um, it's either preventing or reducing inflammation and yes. mo it modulates the immune system. Mm -hmm. is it, is it, so it kind um, of tempers, the, tempers the, the fires in the body, so to speak. Yeah, I guess we could call it regulating inflammatory pathways, but okay. it, does, it does do that. Um, and the allergic response, see, so it, that's part of it. You know, what you're saying, it, it tamps down that allergic response um, and lowers the, the level of inflammation. Um, also, it may uh, regulate uh, transmitters, you know, like dopamine and serotonin, because transmitters are chemicals that submit signals in the nervous system. And camel milk has GABA, um, a neurotransmitter that lowers brain and central nervous system activities. And so some Calms people actually say they feel much calmer on camel milk. Um, one of the earliest uses that I heard of from Israel was that 
some people with schizophrenia were just saying that they had better days on it. It's not like a cure or anything. I never say it's a cure for this and that. Right. But they were just reporting that they had better days, best days on camel milk. So um, maybe the GABA is part of that. This is WERU. This is uh, Let's Talk Animals, Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host, and I'm talking with Christina Adams, the author of Camel Crazy, about the benefits of camel milk. It's fascinating. Uh, I want to get, we talked about the milk itself. Let's talk about camels. And camels, I love, love talking about them. Good. Uh, the, there's two kinds. He tells the one hump, two hump. First of all, uh, I thought I've read in the book, or I read someplace, that they originally came from North America. Um, yeah, you would never think it, but um, camels uh, are kind of, um, they will always surprise you. I guess that's a good way to put it. Even though we associate camels with, you know, deserts and other countries, uh, the camelid family uh, just was like um, a North American origin. Uh, they think like 44 million years ago. And then there were different breeds of the time. So there was a little tiny one, um, and they were in Southern California where I am. And then uh, there was a real tall one, apparently, about only three million years ago, uh, they think. Who knows? You know, the stuff is still being pieced together as we put together the fossil record. But there was a very tall one that lived in Southern California. And uh, there used to be big herds of them that moved um, across North America. But unfortunately, you know, they are not here anymore. And then there was, there's a land bridge, of course, that they're thought to have migrated over to the Asian continent. Um, and so they're associated with those places. But um, we still have llamas, vicuñas, alpacas, and guanacos, you know, in South America and, and all that. So um, it, they were funny-looking little creatures, too. Well, maybe some were small and some were bigger. But um, we can't reconstruct, like, the hump because that's flesh. But you can see the skeletons of them. And, like, there's a museum in Los Angeles that has the skeletons um, of some of them. So well, it's pretty some, cool. There's a, um, a mammoth uh, facility in Texas. It's an di archaeological dig. Uh, it's a, I think it's a federal government site, but we, my wife and I visited it, and with the mammoth uh, bones um, were camels, too. So they were kind of amongst all the mammoths, and uh, it was kind of surprising. I didn't realize that they started here and then went over to the Europe and Africa. Yeah, people have said that, like, the, the mammoths are the stars of the show historically from back then, but, hey, the camels are here, too. Yeah. You know, it's again, it's one of those things where we just don't really know that much about camels in this country, and other countries are still learning as well. I'll talk about, uh, of course, we all want to know the one hump versus two hump and their names. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, there are basically two kinds of camels. Um, the first one is the dromedary, which is a single hump. And that's the one that is used in the dairy uh, most often, like the dairy business, even though the two humps are called Bactrians, and they too are used for dairy. But you'll usually find your Bactrians in the colder places like Mongolia, um, China, um, the Asian steppes kind of places. So um, the, the desert camel is usually it's called the, sometimes even called the Arab, uh, Arabic camel. That's the dromedary one hump. And... Um, so then there's even a, a flock of uh, wild Bactrians that are genetically a little bit distinct from the other two, but they're kind of near Mongolia, China, and they're super flighty, and you can't even hardly get near them. But there are people trying to help them survive, just that little flock. So most people know about the dromedaries, the Lawrence of Arabia, that sort of thing. Those are probably the most well-known, I, would, I mm -hmm. would assume. 
Yes. Um, and they're the most popular for, you know, most uses. But um, amazingly, even in America, camels are everywhere. We have at least 5,000, um, probably more. Uh, but they're in every state and hot and cold climates. So they can handle extremes of temperature. You'll, you can find camels in like 120 Fahrenheit down to well below zero. And they are just practically one of the most survivable animals that has ever been conceived, probably. And so who knows, maybe that extreme adaptability is one reason that they have such unique qualities uh, that makes their milk um, so super-powered. The camels themselves are actually still being, being used now for medical applications like immunotherapy to treat snake bite. Um, so they're medically an important animal, too. Their adaptation for desert life is amazing. But one misconception, uh, you can tell my listeners about the humps. Yeah. So I, like everyone else in the world, you think the hump is a water tank, you know, because you know that they don't drink water. They can go without water for a while, but you, you feel like, oh, yeah, that's got to be what that is. But it turns out the hump is actually fat. And um, you can look at a camel and... Uh, sometimes if they're not doing well, their hump might be real small or might be floppy, but sometimes they'll just get floppy for no reason and they're still doing fine. But that's fat, and that um, is a store for them. They're super um, efficient at using energy, but they do draw on that fat to go, you know, through the miles and miles and miles of desert without a drink for, you know, up to a month. And um, camels have been a building block of all our societies because they were used uh, in the Silk Road when, you know, merchandise and salt and things like that were brought from very far away to um, places that were able to be imported to Europe. And then, of course, American culture, a lot is founded on European culture. So we're all benefiting from those camels that used to travel across the desert, you know, with the caravans. But their adaptations for uh, water are amazing. You you point this out in the book, the different things that the body actually does to um, conserve water. Can you share that with us, please? Yes, it's really amazing. So um, camels are able to go up to 30 days. I mean, theoretically, it's possible to go longer, but no one likes that to happen uh, because they're so valuable. But then they have these special oval blood cells that you don't find in other animals. And uh, they're kind of shaped like little footballs. And so when a camel goes that long, the oval blood cells will compress so they can still slip through um, the blood, the veins, and keep the animal going. And uh, then when it's time to rehydrate, they can suck in up to 30 gallons of water in 13 minutes. And those oval blood cells, which have compressed, will just swell way back up. They can go up to 240% of their original size. And now if a regular animal did that or a mammal, like a human, we would die. They would burst and we would die. But the camels, they just swell right back up to 240% that much if they're if they need to do it, and it doesn't cause them a problem at all. And so that's how they stay oxygenated. And then also, they actually recycle their own moisture. So uh, they don't sweat a lot. Their sweat glands are very buried very deep in their fur. Um, and then when the, like they get moisture that, say, it's going to trickle out of their nostrils, then it's going to go like back into their you know, mouth, and they recycle it through their body. And so they're super efficient. And... Then also their feet are kind of interesting as well because they're, they're not a hoof. They're a soft, padded, leathery foot um, with, a single, like with like a single cleft in the middle. Um, so you'll see this big round padded foot, and then it's got, like, it looks like it has two toes, and there's, two toe, there's toe bones in there. I've seen them. And uh, so that foot 
is keeps them stable on the shifting sand, and it can handle like a lot of surfaces. It's very leathery and thick. Um, so some people say like, oh, it's a hoofed animal. They classify them that some places, but they're really not a hoofed animal. Um, so that's again, you know, we don't our our regulators don't really understand much about camels yet. So when you when you see a, um, a footprint of a camel, it's it's it spreads out, doesn't it? Like a almost like a snowshoe. Yes, it does. And um, I have some. I'm so lucky. The publisher put some beautiful pictures of camels and their caregivers um, in my book, Camel Crazy. And I have I included a picture of the the camel footprints in the sand, and they're just got this beautiful shape. They're kind of like um, you know a round, soft kind of shape, and uh, one could get a little sentimental and say it almost looks like a heart, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm not really doing that, but I did just come <laughs> to mind that it kind of looks like that. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's a, just a classic image. I mean, camels are symbols of the desert, but you know we do have them in America, and they are everywhere. Um, the great thing about camels also is that they um, are pretty hardy. Like they, they don't like rain. It won't hurt them, but they don't like it. So they will come in uh, into the sheds in America, you know, when it rains and kind of stand under that. But um, they're pretty hardy. They can live in, you know, Michigan, Missouri, and uh, then Texas. So all over us, they're, they're thriving. Well, I did have the opportunity. My daughter and I were in Morocco, and I was able to get up on a camel and ride it. And one of the things that was uh, – scary was how high they are uh, when you're up on a yeah. camel you are what seven eight nine feet high so it's very shocking isn't it when yes, you get up is. on the camel yeah and um and then if you're lucky enough to get on the camel when it's down on the ground in a cush position we call it and then it gets up you're going to tilt way forward and then way back because it kind of gets up like a folding ironing board first you know the back <laughs> yeah. or the front you're taking a little carnival ride just getting getting it to stand up and uh they are very tall they can be 1600 pounds or more i have seen huge camels pictures of them and some in person just enormous in camel crazy actually i saw this camel called big ian or big uh, big uh, ivan you know but he's a belgian camel he is an enormous bactrian camel He's so big, you can't believe he's real. And so I said to the owner, can I please put a picture of Big Ian in my book? And so she looks like a little doll up sitting between those double humps. I mean, it's like riding a mountain. Oh my gosh. And they're walking. You said this is efficient. Uh, it's kind of like a swaying. Both sides of, of the right, the right front and right rear go together, and then the other way, right? It's kind of a... yeah. So the same Bolt. the same legs um, on the same I'm side That's move what I was trying together. To say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of tricky, um, but yeah, the same legs on the same sides will move together. So one side goes forward on both legs, the other side goes forward on both legs. So that gives them a swaying type of feel, and so that's one reason they have their nickname as the ships of the desert uh, because you can kind of you know give that swaying feeling. Um, but yeah, they're super energy efficient. Um, everything is designed to you know keep them moving and surviving. Um, But as far as that, too, an interesting thing is it looks like the early forms of camels um, that were evolving here in North America looks like they had the same pace, too. That's called a pace, that type of walking. Mm -hmm. So it looks like it's persisted all the way through the evolutionary process. And you mentioned Cushing. Cushing. Is that how you pronounce it? 
Yeah, kush, kush. kush, kush. And, and then other that? countries will say ik or her or hush, hush. So it's a very, um, you know, locale dependent thing. But here in America, we say uh, kush or kush. Um, and so every camel, you know, if it's going to be used, and they do need to be used, uh, you know, I mean, you can have a pet camel, but they like to, to be busy and and do things. So if you can teach them how to get down and get up, it's very good. And so you teach them how to hush or cush or whatever. So um, that's one of the earliest lessons a camel gets. And let's get to the veterinarian. I'm sorry, Christina, but I have to I have to talk about the poop. And okay, let's go. Poop and stress, <laughs> and uh, how the poop can reflect how the camel is feeling. Share. Yes, is that something? Yes. Well. Tell my listeners about that. I will. So um, one of the ways you can tell what's going on with a camel is looking at its poop. So normally camels have little dry, tiny little poops, and they're just like, I call them like big hamster droppings. They look like little (laughs) balls of, you know, uh, almost like a little ball of straw and dirt packed together. It would probably make a good uh, snowball fight type of thing. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, then when they get more stressed, like if they're, something's bothering them or you're putting demands on them, they're not in the mood to do, I mean, um, it, it, will be, it will loosen up. So it can get kind of more, it'll start coming a little more fast, it'll be larger, it can get more liquidy and loose. Um, it can get, um, you know, like to that stage, like bigger, like grapes, you know, the size of grapes. But then if it gets really stressed or angry or, you know, just like... Um, not doing what it wants to do, then it gets like guacamole green and comes out on the ground. And so we, you know, you can call that blowing guacamole. Um, <laughs> but the fascinating thing about poop is, you know, that amazingly, um, the camel just never ceases to amaze. Um, there's a story that in World War II, some soldiers were in, um, I don't know if it was Jordan or Africa or somewhere, but they got dysentery. And so they treated their dysentery by eating camel poop, and it and it solved it. They got better. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, they also yeah, have... And the urine has, yeah, the good, urine yes, has urine. medicinal properties. Some people, yeah. And they're looking, at, they're looking more into that with what urine can do? They are. Um, now, urine has been used medically for different reasons. I mean, in, in uh, pharmaceutical companies use it to pregnant mare's urine to make a drug for women. Um, but then in other countries, you know, they have used it medicinally. I mean, you use what you got if you don't have a pharmacy. Um, but it looks like the camel urine may have some unique properties. Uh, some people are mixing it into cocktails with the milk that tastes kind of like kombucha, I'm told. I haven't done it. But it's being used to treat a lot of conditions, including cancer. So I have not witnessed that for myself yet. I've seen some reports from people in places. So um, it's not something I, you know, claim any expertise on or see any medical proof of. But I have seen information on it that looks quite promising. Another thing that people have a misconception is that camels spit like llamas. And that's a misconception. It is, and what that is is not spit. It's actually vomit, and uh, that's a pleasant thought. Which is which actually worse, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I'd rather be spit oh, on yeah. than vomited on. So I have been around so many thousands of camels, but I've never seen it. But I've kind of told that Bactrians are more prone to that than dromedaries, but that you'll get warning signs. So if they start to grumble a lot, I mean, camels do make noise. They're, it's part of their charm. They grumble, they growl, they blubber, they moan like it's pretty cool, fascinating. But 
if they're kind of tossing their head around and kind of chewing and being kind of angry, um, then you got to watch out because it could happen. So it is a response to being pissed off, basically. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what all the Camelliers tell me. Again, I haven't seen it, and I don't know if I ever really need to. <laughs> and they have prodigious memories. Is that they do? Like so elephants? camels, it turns out, are very intelligent. So. Um, the camel people, a lot of them say that it's around the equivalent of an eight-year-old child mentally. But then I was um, at a Texas farm uh, a couple months ago, and I was around a lot of camels. And so one of the camels was, uh, the handler from Australia was saying, oh, do you see this guy? He is so smart. He's like a 12-year-old child. He Look how smart he is. So then they have long memories, and they remember who's nice to them and who's naughty to them. So if you hurt a camel or you're trying to hurt it, even if you have in the past, they might get you. They are the uh, the, the epitome of revenge is a dish best served cold. Mm-hmm. Um, they do not forget. And but on the plus side, they really love humans. They bond to them. They can form a herd structure with humans, even at you know as part of that herd structure. And um, you kind of have to be the boss of your camel, or it'll boss you and run you over. So um, you work together, but they want to know who's in charge. That's how they function. They like a herd structure. They like to know, you know, dominance shifts throughout the herd, but there's always like leader, a leader or leaders. Was a, a fluid dominance and a caravan? Is that what you call a flock of camels? Caravans? That's the technical term, but most people just say herd because uh, okay. it's easier. And, you know, if they're a dairy animal now, that's kind of like a... Cow, herd of cows, people right. just say herd, but yeah, technically that's the right thing to so say. So the females are usually together, and they kind of, and they keep the males separate? Well, it's kind of interesting. Breeding? If you, yeah, if, if a male is a bull, and um, those are like the big daddies, um, because you have to have daddies to make babies. So um, the the females, they are, the senior females are kind of like um, the day-to-day herd leaders. They kind of do the work. Isn't that always the case? Like the women are doing all the work, mm-hmm. and the one big guy he gets the title. But um, yeah, it's like but, drones um, and bees. Yeah, so the <laughs> yeah, so the females do the work of kind of managing everybody. But then the boy, the man, the bull, he always can come in and push people around and keep people in control. You know, the camels. But then, um, so the males in this country, we we uh, castrate our males around two, three years, um, and then they don't become bulls and they don't become so aggressive and dominant. Um, they can still, of course, be dominant, but they're not, you know, aggressive. But when a bull is in rut, that's when they're going to, you know, make babies. So that's when they get very dangerous. And you do have to keep them uh, separate or managed. Um, one bull can uh, have 24 females that he's making babies with. Um, and they are scary when they're in rut. They have this big fleshy balloon that comes out of the side of their their jaw. And it's like a big red flesh balloon called a dulla. And it and it blows up, and then they roar and blubber and and grit their teeth so loud you can hear it squeak. And that is a bull that wants to make babies, and you got to watch out for them. Stay away. Stay away unless you're going to help it make a baby, because um, that's what a lot of the cultures do. You know, they help the. Uh, this is money. When babies are born. You know, they're they're money. It's what they do, and so they'll they'll guide the bull over and kind of uh, you know help them get settled, and and there you go. Now, milking a camel, it seemed, was is kind of an art in itself, too, right? And you, you noticed, or you wrote in your book about how you witnessed some people were able to milk a camel, and some people can't. There's an art to it. 
Well, it's pretty Earth. pretty good. Um, it seems like it's something that is not so bad once you learn how to do it right. Okay. So first of all, camels want to be, they have to feel safe and secure to give milk. The females will not give it if they are not happy. And so you, it's a kind of a good self-protective me- mechanism. So if you can bond with the camel emotionally and it gets used to you, then that's the best. Then they'll give it to you much more easily and things like that. But if you just walk up to them and you try to do this and that and they don't know you and they don't like you, then you can stand there all day. Um, so in America, we the, the farmers are using um, like these little goat milking uh, things where they just, a little machine, mm-hmm. so they attach the, the milking to the teat and it goes out into a little you know metal jug and um, so that's pretty easy. But then in some of the cultures I've visited, like India, you know, they still stand on one leg. They have the pot on the other knee, and um, they are there milking the camel uh, with their hands. And uh, then after they have their get their camels milked, then they drink some milk and they have a, a tea with a little bit of a, you know, interesting um, calming effect in that tea. And that's their day, and um, that's how they've lived for centuries, and they're still doing it. Well, with our milk camel milk producers, how many females do they does a good milk producer need to to set up a business, so to speak? Well, there are some people that start. Yeah, there's some people that start small. So first of all, you know, you have to have a camel that is pregnant and going to give milk, or that already has a baby with it, or is a proven milker. Um, so you, that's where you you know the ancient saying about uh, don't don't buy a camel from anyone you don't really know. Um, <laughs> Okay. comes into play because you gotta you gotta know what to look for. So some people can just buy you know like a a, a mother and a baby and and milk it and then you can get it bred by another male when the time comes if you want to have another. Um, but if you you know there's only a certain portion of the herd that's going to be given milk. So let's say you have 20 camels, you know you might be milking five at any given time. So. Um, that's why camel milk is not the cheapest thing because they don't give a lot of milk like cows, and it takes a lot of maintenance to get it. Um, but it's worth it, so that's uh, that's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, but then, yeah, um, you can have the camel farms that are, you know, like the the two I wrote about in Camel Crazy. One had thirty five hundred camels at the time. Another had seventeen hundred camels at the time when I was there. So that's a whole different type of, um, you know. Vision. You go to a farm in America and you might see, you know, we have 130, I think, in Missouri now, which is great. We have, you know, 70 or 80 maybe uh, in uh, another state. But when you go to the Middle East and there you see a thousand camels walking around, it's pretty incredible. I, I bet. Now, so uh, believe it or not, we're running out of time. Uh, so I have a couple more questions. Uh, the t- milk, t- uh, the camel, camel's milk tastes like milk? That is the number one fear. Whoa, I don't want to try this. What is it? And then they drink it. People drink it, and they go, oh, it just tastes like milk. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you can get it now in powdered form. Um, so that's a good form to have because you can travel with it easily and mix it up as you need it. Um, and then you can get it in, uh, you know, liquid form. You can get it all kinds of ways. And Camel Crazy does have, again, the guide in the back on where to get it in America and other countries, how to use it, how much do you give, and even have a smoothie recipe. And there's a big issue of pasteurized versus raw uh, that you discussed, too. You, final thoughts yes, on that? And, yeah, I do talk about that in the uh, in the book, but in the appendix, it's there for you, too. So some people, they um, are doing just fine on the pasteurized milk. Um, 
the, the kids are doing fine, adults are doing fine. Other people, it seems like they need that extra punch that kind of comes from the raw. Now, pasteurized does retain a lot of the qualities, um, but sometimes the people just need that more powerful raw form. But what I suggest is do whatever you're comfortable with. If you want to start with the, the raw full out, go ahead. But if you want to just get pasteurized and see how it goes or get the powder and see how it goes, then, you know, that's fine. And there's, diff- and there's different kinds of pasteurization as well. Some are like quick pasteurization that, that may not uh, influence some of the benefits, right? Is that what you yeah, that, mentioned? Yeah. So like used to, uh, people were doing this long vat pasteurization where they cook it for 30 minutes and um, that wasn't doing very well for the camel milk, but... Now they're doing flash pasteurization, which you actually, you know, only heat it for a few seconds and to a certain level, and then boom, you're done. And so uh, it doesn't cook it for all that long period of time. Um, And then uh, there's, uh, you know, liquid, there's powder, like I said, but then there's like a kind that people are talking about, freeze-dried versus spray-dried. That's some of the kinds of powders. But, um, you know, again, it's very individual, so... um, read about it in Camel Crazy, and you'll probably get a good sense on what you want to try first. A lot easier than when you started to get to Oh, that. yeah. I mean, looking back, I'm thinking, yeah, I guess I was a little Camel Crazy, but, you know, I had an instinct. It was based on research and experience, and I just, I can't even explain to myself. I just felt like this is the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, now that I've written this medical journal article years ago, and now it's been cited about 13 times by other researchers, and it's really you know, move the whole thing forward. And um, it's just not an occupation I ever would have seen myself doing, but it was important. So I'm, I'm glad I've been part of it. I think a lot of people will thank you for being such a great mother and determined to help Jonah. And it's been a, it's been a wonderful hour with you. The book also has a lot about the different milk producers, uh, the Amish and India, a lot of, a lot of good stories. It's, it's a wonderful book to read. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Christina. And one last thing, do you drink camel milk? Well, I uh, drink camel milk every day. It's the only milk in my house. And if you want to see pictures of milk and uh, ice cream and things like that, you can get camel crazy at anywhere books are sold, Amazon, bookstores, uh, wherever. You can even go to your library and ask them to order it for you if you're on a budget. And my website is christinaadamsauthor.com. And I tell you, just since um, I've been getting ready for this hour, there's so many people that I know that was appropriate for me to mention Camel Crazy because there's so many people that are touched by different things in their life with the children. So uh, thank you very much for writing the book. Thank you for the hour uh, spending with me. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. It's been really fun. So this is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvark to Zebras, Dr. John Hunt, to say goodbye and remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug. 